0: Let's pray together. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Lord, how we pray today that you would open our hearts to fully trust in you rather than leaning on our own understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we've been looking at this book of Proverbs over the last few weeks, and I've been trying to think about how Proverbs, that is little sayings that people say in life, how they work. So Proverbs isn't just a book in the Bible, it's also, we have Proverbs, we say, I was thinking about this one, you might know it, if you're British, many hands make light work. If, If you're not British, it's a phrase that means the more workers you have, the easier the job will be. Now, how does that little proverb work? You hear it and you think, yes, that makes sense. When we all work together as a team, everything will get done easier. It makes sense. Then you actually try inviting lots of people to help you with what you're doing and you end up more like this. It doesn't make sense. Uh, All of these people interrupting me are getting in my way. Uh, It seems broken because it would just be easier if I'd done it myself. And yet... If you take a step back and look at the big picture of how the world works, it does make sense, doesn't it? Look at this big building like this. It's being built on the road from the office. You couldn't do that by yourself. So people do work together big picture, even though sometimes it seems not quite to work as smoothly as the proverb makes out. Now, Proverbs is full of advice for living like that, offered from the point of view of the God who made the real world. And he designed it to run a certain way. So, in my prayer group this week, we were talking about this proverb from chapter 22, verse 24 and 25. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn their ways and get yourselves ensnared. Now, that makes sense. If you hang out with people, you begin to take on their characteristics. But it sort of doesn't make sense, does it? Because lots of people are angry some of the time and you can't just go around cutting angry people out of your life. So it's pretty hard to put it into practice. And yet, big picture, it does make sense, doesn't it? The type of people you surround yourself with will be the type of person you become. It's just the way the world works. It makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. But it does make sense. And that's the view of Proverbs, this book we're reading, that the world has an order, a way that God's put it together. Many hands make light work. But also this world is fallen and broken and people have rebelled against God. And the way the world functions is twisted and messed up. It would be easier if I just did it myself. But the big picture is that underneath the brokenness and twistedness, that is still basically the way the world works. I couldn't have done that big thing by myself. And there's a call throughout these first chapters of the book to, get, to be wise, to get this wisdom that comes from God, even if it bankrupts you. We had that in our passage today in verse, 11 and, uh, verse 13 and 14. Get wisdom, even if it breaks you. And we've seen in the first chapter of the book, there are four questions to ask about what is a wise decision, and we'll leave those at the top of the screen all the way through. Proverbs encourages us to think, who am I becoming? Not what do I want, but who is this decision making me? It encourages us to think, am I fearing God? Does this decision come out of a deep respect for God or fear of something or someone else? Proverbs asks us to think, what would my spiritual parents have done? So the people who've gone ahead of me in the faith, who I really respect and honor, how would they have approached this decision I'm facing? And fourthly, are my motivations just the same as the world around me? Proverbs talks a lot about the ways of the wicked, and it says there's a whole lot of motivations you'll just pick up from the world around you unless you examine them and pull them out. And Proverbs asks us those four questions. Now, this chapter we're looking at today, it's a big chunk, has this type of structure. So uh, I've called the beginning and the end of the chapter, stop faffing and get on with it. You'll have noticed as the chapter was read, at the beginning and the end, there's just some very practical down-to-earth things to do. Then a step in from that on either side, 13 to 18 and 21 to 26, there's two poems about wisdom. Wisdom brings peace. And wisdom brings safety. And that leaves us with verses 19 and 20 right in the middle of the passage. That's the center of what's going on here. Plug into reality. And so that's where we're going to start. My friend sent me a picture this week of a mug they'd seen in a shop in Keswick. The type of shop, if you go to Keswick, that's everywhere. It just has sort of tat in it for people to look at and buy when it's raining in their Lake District holiday, as it inevitably does. And this mug said on it, don't go into the world and be yourself, go into the world and make yourself. Yeah, profound, isn't it? (laughs) I can't imagine wanting to think about that as I'm drinking a cup of tea. Anyway, there you go. But what the the little saying was saying, it could have been taken out of any book of, uh, of wisdom that our world would come up with, is basically say, you are in total of control of what your life becomes, so go out and take control and become who you like. Well, the Bible teaches us something different. The Bible teaches us there is a personality behind creation. And there are marks of what matters to him in the way the world works. And you're not free to have a successful life outside of the things he's planted in the world. So the world is made so that, generally speaking, hard work pays off. That making decisions without thinking of the future messes up your life. That sex in the right place is a great joy, and in the wrong place creates problems. Those things aren't accidental. They show the character of the God who made them, and he planted those things when he was founding the earth. Look at verses 19 and 20. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided, and the clouds let drop the dew. He's saying the character of God when he was founding the earth established the value of work and thought and faithfulness in the world. So just as the size of space speaks to us of God's vast and huge and burning glory, so when you see someone defend someone who's weak and you admire that, that speaks to us of God's care for the weak. It makes sense. Except it doesn't, because loads of people who don't seem to live wisely get on fine. Or maybe you think, no, that doesn't make sense, because I can see it's good to, say, defend weak people, but I personally shouldn't have to make that decision based on the fear of God. I should do what I want for a while. Not be wise, just do what the world does. I should be able to do that. How dare you suggest I can't? Go into the world and make yourself... So it doesn't make sense, except it does make sense because the only way we have a society that functions is if we all think about the effect of our actions on other people who we're becoming. We don't just satisfy our wants. We don't assume everything is okay that people say is okay. Isn't that when society malfunctions, when we admire these qualities God is embedded in creation, serving others, putting them first, but we just don't do them? It makes sense, but it does not make sense, but it does make sense. The Lord founded the earth by wisdom. That's why these things matter. Now, I just want to say as an aside, there are some people who don't believe that, and I get that. Some people say, it's total nonsense what you're saying, that what we admire as good or wise or worthy of praise in people, that isn't because God put that there in us, it's because we've evolved. I'm not making any comment on the issue of evolution at the moment, um, but this is what you hear, sort of people wave their hands and say the magical word evolution, and that explains this thing that we all think there's a right way to live in the world, a wise way to live that we all find difficult, but we all need anyway. I don't know how to explain that. Oh, evolution explains it. It's like magic. Well, the wisdom that this passage describes, for example, steadfastly holding to your promises, not thinking you're really clever and really great, not living for money, there is no way that evolution would have embedded those moral qualities. A system that is based on survival of the fittest would not have done that. Now, it's a huge unsettled debate in that field, actually, about how evolution could have got us to where we think morality is today. But it couldn't have done it. Now, the Christian says, listen, there's a wonderful, self-giving, faithful personality who planted all of that in the way this world has made, but we've rebelled and the world is broken. Now, that explains what we... Experience, doesn't it? That there's this way of living that makes sense, but none of us do it. Much better explanation than the magic one. If you think you don't get to make all the rules, you're much more likely to be faithful to your promises. If we're all just cosmic accidents, you can treat other people whatever way you want. So the mind of God that thought up Mont Blanc and sea snails and supernovas also loves justice and faithfulness. Makes sense. And creation is broken and people rebelled against God. So often in this creation, the world, those things aren't rewarded. So doing them doesn't make sense. And yet we know those things should be done and the world only works if we do them. It does make sense. But you have to accept you're created, not that you create yourself. I wonder if you've picked up uh, this week the argument about BBC pay. Shocking, the BBC, this bastion of liberal equality in the country, pays women much less than men. How shocking that people are, in fact, hypocrites. Who would have thought it? Now, I have not heard a single person on the news this week saying, oh, well, that's just survival of the fittest, isn't it? Men are stronger than women so they can fight to get paid more. Why is no one saying that? Because that is the evolutionary response, isn't it? No, people are saying, it's not fair. It's wrong. They're appealing to some value in the way the world has made that should be sorting out this argument. I agree with that. But because I believe God embedded these things in his creation... We can't just wave our hands over it all and say evolution and expect to come out with good outcomes. God has run through this creation like a rich seam of coal through rocks, a right way to live in this world that he has made. He laid the earth's foundations by wisdom. So plug into reality. If you're wise, you're plugging into the way God made the world. Second thing we see, wisdom brings life, in verses 21 to 26. Sorry, that should be, wisdom brings life, 13 to 18. Happy, says verse 13, is the one who finds his way to wisdom. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If you live God's way in his world, you'll be happy. Except it doesn't make sense, because not doing what I want, but thinking about the type of person I'm becoming fearing God over anyone else, following the path of those spiritual leaders I admire, that's really hard. So what does he mean that that brings happiness? Blessed. And yet we all know, don't we, the person who lives the right way is happier than the person who has loads and loads of money, in verse 14, and is happier than the person who just gets whatever they desire. You're better off, says Solomon, being wise than getting anything else you want, however badly. The path of wisdom, he says, is one of peace. She's a companion, a friend with good gifts. She's a tree of life, which is a beautiful picture. You sit under this tree and eat from and shelter under wisdom, you will get life. And yet I do know when it comes to actually being wise, it's hard. Not just creating yourself, but changing yourself to fit in with the way God wants you to be. That is hard. It makes sense. But it doesn't make sense. But it really does make sense. Because what is a life? What is peace? Is true living ease and money and millionaires' yachts and being free to do what we like? Is that life? Or is a real life a full life, a thriving human life? Are the people we admire, the people who really live, are those people the ones who head out on adventures hand in hand with the God who made them to give themselves away for the people who need it? Who's really living there? I was listening this week, Spotify played me, Ed Sheeran's album. I didn't choose to listen to it. It was chosen for me, I promise. And it's interesting. There's loads of songs on this album about how great life is when you just like party and have sex with who you want and you admire the shape of people's bodies and that's how you evaluate people, blah, 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 blah. And then at the end of the album, there's this really sad, slow song called Supermarket Flowers which is about clearing out his grandmother's hospital room when she died. It's really actually a very sad, moving song. And in that song, all of a sudden, Ed Sheeran says, a life lived well is a life where you've loved other people. It's like, hold on. (laughs) That's a bit different than the worldview of a life is lived well is the one where you have parties all the time. That's in every other song. But we all know, don't we, what real life is really. When we come face to face with life, will end someday. We know what a good life will have been. Not one where you've done what you liked, but one where you love people. And wisdom is better than riches, but brings riches. But he says, uh, you think being wise is living to protect all your earthly treasures, living to protect your career and your status and your nice house and your bank balance and your silver and gold, living to protect those things, we think that's life, but that's no life, is it? Allowing your bank balance to dictate what you do all the time? No, life is aiming for something great, walking with God's radical values built into creation, that's living. And that shapes your desires such that you'll get the wealth you want, because he will have changed what you want. There's a chance, isn't there, in the chaos of this broken world, not just to be a victim, but to be a blessing to others if you don't let your money control you. Isn't that real life? Wisdom offers life, peace, pleasantness. She is a tree of life. And if you don't care about wisdom and think, oh, well, I'm just going to live to get what I want, I want to say, is that a real life? It seems to be built into creation that it isn't. Even Ed Sheeran sees that in the end, that makes sense as a way to live. Wisdom brings life. Wisdom brings safety, verses 21 to 26. I saw this graph this week that talked about Um, It was measuring against how much social trust there is, so how much people trust each other in a culture, to measure it against how much freedom people get in their workplace. So in those countries where people really trust each other a lot, at work, people are managed very freely. They basically get to do what they like. In those countries where it's a very low level of trust, everybody hates their work because their boss is constantly checking to see if they're doing the right thing all the time. It sort of makes sense. Wisdom brings safety. If we all know we can trust each other to put other people first, you you can be free. If we suspect everybody's out for themselves, nobody's safe. And yet sometimes that doesn't make sense. Because the Christians I know who I look at as real models of godly wisdom who are people who have done things that seem to make them incredibly unsafe. I was reading recently about this American Christian, Shane Claiborne, you may have come across him. He basically had such a heart for a poor neighbourhood in his city, he moved in and sort of started effectively a commune with his friends to try and bless this area, and uh, lived in this really dangerous area, got shot at all the time, and then his house burned down, he lost everything that he owned. Well, where's the promise of safety for him? doesn't seem to make sense. And yet, it does make sense, doesn't it? Because if you're willing to fear only God, well, there's nothing left to fear. If you're willing to have living for him, be all that matters, other things don't matter. She and Claiborne lost all his stuff and said, well, I didn't lose anything that was important to me. Wisdom brings safety. Someone asked a question last week after the service, it was a great question. How do you choose what's wise, what's not self-seeking, when everything around you and your own heart is saying, put yourself first? How do you do that without becoming a bitter, angry person who just does the wise thing, but sort of grudgingly? It's a great question. It got me thinking. And it got me thinking about these verses, where it seems to say a life where you can let go of the fear of not getting everything. That life where you walk hand in hand with God, where the things that matter to the world don't matter to you in your heart, but all you care about is God's opinion, that is a life where you're safe. Because nothing can take away the thing that really matters to you. And there's more than that for the Christian, because in Jesus, if you're trusting him, God's good opinion and care for you is guaranteed. So the only person you fear, the only one who can judge you, is already the one who died for you. Here's a verse from Romans chapter 8. I love this verse. Who then is the one who condemns, who judges, no one, Christ Jesus who died, more than that who is raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Do you see what it's saying? The only person in the whole world who has the right to judge anyone is Jesus. And he died for you and is standing before God talking about you. You have nothing to lose by fearing him. Everything is safe when you trust him. And that gives you a safety to do risky, crazy-looking things like move into a tough area and set up a monastic community and bring friends to Jesus and end a comforting but ungodly relationship. The truth is about us that our security in life is dependent on things that are not secure. Other people's good opinions, success at work, the love of a spouse... Fearing only God is safer. It's a hard safety. That fight with the world that says, you're really unwise for putting others first. The fight with a heart which cries to be put first. That's a hard fight. But it is a fight for something good. It's a fight to be able to lie down unafraid Because the only one worth fearing is for you. It's the fight to walk securely, love securely, desire the things that are good. I love that picture. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. That's what we're fighting for, to put our heads on the pillow and say, the only one who can judge me is for me. I can sleep. Wisdom brings safety. So, Stop faffing and get on with it. We're into the fourth chapter of Proverbs now, and this is the first time that we will really have had any content at all of what this wise life actually is. Some people have been getting a bit bored, I think, of waiting, and there have been reasons for that because wisdom is a relationship you live in, not rules you follow, and the writer's been wanting to get the relationship right before he starts telling us what it looks like. It's mostly about attitudes and motivations in particular situations you're in. But there are practical examples of wisdom. And even in these little things that we're about to get listed, there are echoes of the way God has made the world. To echo God's thoughts in creation in the way you live your life. But you may be thinking, okay, stop faffing with the poetry and this whole stuff about creation and everything. Can we just get on with what a wise life is? Yes, we can. Let's find out what it is. First one, keep loving people with cost. That's verses three and four. Let steadfast love and faithfulness be what you wear. Let that be your everyday attitude to life. The steadfast love there is the word for God's love. It keeps going and it's costly. The first thing the wise person does is keeps loving even at great, great cost. Now, we would never have thought that up for the first rule of a wise life, would we? We'd have said the first thing a wise person does is put sensible boundaries in place to make sure no one sucks you into their messy life. That's what we would have done. But who can deny that the person who cares for their terminally ill spouse is more what a person is made to be than the person who trades in their spouse for a better model to seek their own happiness? Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Wear love and faithfulness. It makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't, because it's hard. But it really does. It's the only way the world can work. Verses 5 and 6. Submit to God in every area. Submit to God everywhere. That's something we've seen before. Whatever makes up your days, whether it's at home, in a hospital, in a school, it all takes place in God's world, and there is a way to submit to him in that place, whatever you're doing. And that will make your paths straight, the writer says. Often our paths are crooked and difficult. We don't know what to do, and that's because we wait for the tricky situation in life, often one we've created by ignoring God, and then we say, oh God, my life's so complicated, it's so tricky to know what to do. The wise person goes into whatever they do, saying, what does it mean to submit to God in this? What does it mean to show steadfast love and faithfulness here? What does it mean to play the long game, thinking about what I'm becoming, not what I want, in this place? And Proverbs says, if you do that, if that's your approach to life, the path you're supposed to take will become very clear. Don't lean on your own cleverness. Submit to God. Seek him out and his way of living, embedded in the world, in medicine, in parenting, in marriage, in dating. If you do that, submit to him in that area. What you are supposed to do, the best way to live, will become clear to you. It is a death doing that, but it's also a life doing that. Third thing, don't think you're clever, verse 7. I love that. You get two pieces of advice about how to be wise, and the writer knows this very well. We'll start doing two wise things and then start saying, oh, very clever, actually, I knew what it is to be wise. Two things of wisdom I can do. Third piece of advice, do not be wise in your own eyes. There are plenty of areas of life where we think, yeah, I've got this sorted now, so I don't really need God's help here. My first day in my new job, I prayed all day because I was terrified. Now I don't need God's help at work. My first sermon I gave, I practically prepared on my knees. Now I just churn them out, easy peasy. Well, if wisdom was about being a good worker or giving a good talk, that might be the case. But wisdom is about fearing God, living in his world, his way. Constantly loving in self giving cost. You will always need help from God for that. You will always need to work on having God in his rightful place, to be on guard against evil if wisdom is knowing God that way. So don't be wise in your own eyes. Head into every day accepting you have lots to do and learn in terms of wisdom. It is a death to your own cleverness and your sense that you're a really great person. But it is real life. Next, give your money to God first, verse 9. This is where wisdom gets us, doesn't it? The first fruits, the idea of that is the first thought of what you do with something you've got is how do I give it to God? First thought hard that but it's good and there is a beauty isn't there of even using a little wealth in a way that's for god not for me it's very unsafe isn't it it seems in this area this is the one that from me people always want to rule how much money should i give to the church exactly can i serve god and live in a nice house yes or no is there a godly way to be rich Proverbs just asks us a question back. Does the way you use your wealth, and nearly everybody sitting in this room is wealthy by world standards, does it honor God? Does the way you use whatever you have show what God is like in the world? It's hard that, but it's good. And there's even a little tip with the first fruits thing, get into the discipline of thinking that first when you get money or stuff. How can I use it for God? It's hard, but it's beautiful. It's a death to yourself, but it's a life. It's risky, but it's secure. I'd rather give it to God who promises to use it for my benefit than the mortgage company that makes no such promise. Fourthly, fifthly, appreciate God's discipline. If you're a new Christian, it may surprise you to know that none of the people here who've been Christians for a very long time have it all sorted and find it very easy. Rather, as you go on, you discover of God's changing spirit more and more calling on your life. God putting his finger on things, highlighting whole things that need to change through circumstances that you're facing. And the the wisdom of the Christian is when that happens, to take it not as condemnation, but as love. Isn't that what it says? Don't despise the Lord's discipline, because the Lord disciplines those he loves in verse 12. When something like that happens, a circumstance, a person, a thing, where a whole area of your horrible ungodliness becomes apparent, that's not God telling you off it's God loving you. And a wise person welcomes that rather than trying to avoid it. I wonder, um, have we, as we've done this and we've explored that wisdom is this thing we're supposed to talk to us about, has anyone said to you as we're doing this sermon series, you know, I'm not sure that the way you're living in this area is wise. Maybe they haven't been as gentle as they should have been, but that's been the gist of what they're saying. We're thinking about wisdom. I'm not sure you're being wise. You're a wise person to welcome that. Even if in the end you think they're wrong, you will welcome that type of conversation rather than trying to avoid it. It is a very, very unwise person who gets angry at being questioned. It is an unwise person who says, I will go and find someone else who will say more affirming and positive things to me, who pushes God away when life is tough. There is an unwise background thought that God and therefore other Christians are enemies who are against us. Not a parent and a family who are for us. A wise person never gets tired of God calling you on to something better. That is always the perfect parenting. Loving his child. And then very practical. At the end of the passage, isn't it? There's four other things. If you can be generous, do be. Verse 28, I love that. Do not say to your neighbor, come back and tomorrow I'll give it to you. When you already have it with you. It's very practical, isn't it? We uh, love to do that. God's made the world to run better if we all help others when we can. But we prefer to hoard and say, yes, I ought to help with that, but I'll do it tomorrow. No, that doesn't help the world work well. If you're able to help someone, do. Treat those near you well, in verse 29. Do not plot harm against your neighbor. Maybe someone new is in your workplace and you think, oh, I'm relieved I'm not the new one anymore. We can all gang up on them now. Don't plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. The world is made to run that we are kind to our neighbors. We don't plot harm against them. Verse 30, don't pick fights. It amazes me how many Christians love picking fights. Sometimes they call it theological debate. It's just picking fights. Uh, If your bad mood doesn't make any sense and you're ready to pick a fight with your spouse or children, stop it. It is wiser to stop. Don't envy bad success. Don't envy the violent or choose any of their ways. If none of us wanted to be like violent people, it's a very scientific statement I'm about to make. If none of us wanted to be like violent people, there wouldn't be any violence. It's almost as if God's planned the world to work that way. Now, it doesn't feel like it makes sense because it feels like then the violent people get ahead, but it does make sense because the person I want to be is not the person who gets stuff by hurting people. It's very practical. But let's go back to thinking about the shape of the passage. Practical, poems of life and safety. And plugging into reality, that's where end where we started. Because the God who became a person, Jesus Christ, when he walked our path, he did you notice, He didn't reinvent the rules to win. He walked the way that God made the world to run, even when it hurt him. Have you ever noticed about that about Jesus? It's one of the things people sometimes say about the Gospels that were written about him. If he was really God, why didn't he make it all more impressive? You know, why didn't he just click his fingers and crush all the Roman soldiers? Why not show himself to be powerful? And the answer to that is he was really human. Not just God in disguise. And he saw that this way of living, respecting God over everyone else, living with the long view, not accepting the world's way of doing things, that really makes sense. He saw out of everyone as that the world hated his gentle, wise, loving neighbor, so they killed him, that sometimes wisdom doesn't make sense. But he humbled himself to live by the wisdom he created to help us. And I just want to finish by saying, if he can't go out into the world and ignore the way it's made, then neither can we. If Jesus lived by and valued the way God made the world, accepting if God says that's the way the world runs, that's what you do, how much more are we going to have to do that? In a short moment, we're about to have communion together, eat bread and drink wine, and we're going to remember Jesus' great love for us as he lived the perfectly wise life and died experiencing all of the sin of the world in our place out of love. But I also would ask you today, as we take bread and wine and we consider that Jesus was a real human being. Who lived in this world to use the time to consider our own choices? If he had to consider, if he had to live wisely, no matter the cost, how much more us? As we eat bread and drink wine, his body and his blood, the cost of wisdom making true sense is apparent. And so as we do it today, let's stop stepping away from thinking about the long game. Stop avoiding fearing God. Let's walk the path of doing what those we respect would do. Let's examine and root out wrong motivations. Let's stop stepping away because of the cost of wisdom. Because the God we worship through taking communion did not do that. Let's pray. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Lord, we're so sorry that we often think we can live a better way than you've designed in this world that when the brokenness of the world makes wisdom feel like it doesn't make sense, we don't take that long view where it really does make sense. We just do what we like, and we're sorry for that. We thank you for Jesus, who walked wisely, even at great cost. And we pray that as we remember him today, you would form that heart in us, In his name, amen. Let's just take a few moments of quiet to reflect before we sing.